Hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I'm Nomi Key Konst. Today, we need to free the United States from its own clutches so we can raise the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. I'm talking about the U.S. Senate. Take a deep breath for a second and think about how this about this crazy situation. This is the kind of tangle that makes people hate and distrust government. Raising the minimum wage is both right and extremely popular. Even the voters of Florida did it while voting to keep Trump in office. So the people's will is to do this. And the Democrats said that they would do it as part of President Biden's $1.9 trillion stimulus. Raising the minimum wage is stimulus. It is a powerful tool to move money from the rich and their companies where it sits around in banks to the poor who need it and will spend it. But last night, the Senate parliamentarian, a lawyer named Elizabeth McDonough, she ruled that it would violate the rules of the Senate to increase the minimum wage in the stimulus. This is what she ruled. This is because the Democrats plan to pass the stimulus with just their own 51 votes under one of those old Senate rules written to evade filibusters of budget legislation. In other words, this is a rule. It's called the Bird Rule that puts a loophole in another rule called the filibuster, the one that lets any senator talk legislation to death. The rule in question here, written by that notorious segregationist Robert Byrd from West Virginia, it's simple. Budget legislation must be about the budget, not about policy changes that have only incidental impact on the budget. Now remember the parliamentarian is an unelected official. Her job, and as an aside, because this is from Friday, Madonna is the first woman to serve as parliamentarian, so that's great. But her job is to advise the senators on what rules they wrote actually say and how they apply to specific situations like this. Being a good lawyer and a diligent parliamentarian, she told the Senate that their rules mean what it says, meaning like they wrote the rule and it means what it says and that the minimum wage is not a budget measure and has to come out of the stimulus bill. So it's not a budget measure. That's what she says. But that is just the beginning of the conversation. To their credit, the Democrats all say that they won't let this stop them from finding a way to, to raise the minimum wage. But at the moment, they seem to be going in several directions. Several strong progressives, including Representative Pramila Jayapal, head of the House Progressive Caucus, make the very logical argument that the problem here are the Senate rules. And at the root of all that is the filibuster. So if the rules are in the way of doing something that is important for working people, the obvious thing to do is change the rules. I agree entirely. But... And this is this has nothing to do. I mean, I'm, I'm not happy to say it. It does not appear that the Democrats have the votes that they will need to change the filibuster since two Democrats, Senator Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, told Mitch McConnell they wouldn't do it. Manchin would be unlikely even to vote for revision of the Byrd rule since he now holds Senator Byrd's West Virginia seat and showers his memory with love of him all the time. Now, I am all in for a campaign to mobilize every populist and every progressive in West Virginia to make Joe Manchin see the error of his ways. But we also don't want to de derail the entire stimulus package, something that would please Mitch McConnell and his band of merry Republicans. So that brings up two other approaches. One is just to ignore the parliamentarian. Vice President Kamala Harris or someone put in by Chuck Schumer to preside could simply decide to ignore the parliamentarian's advice. This is tempting, but again, the Democrats probably don't have the votes unless maybe they can get the parliamentarian to rule that the chair can refuse a vote on the chair's ruling to ignore the parliamentarian. Keep it up with me. It seems like a crazy way to run a government and that might be because it is, which brings us to the idea that the key progressives in the Senate Senators Ron Wyden and Bernie Sanders have come up with. It's called the backdoor strategy. If the Byrd rule says only budget measures can go into the stimulus bill, then make the minimum wage a budget item. And how do you do that? You write a new tax law that punishes big companies who underpay their workers and give small companies a tax incentive to raise wages. You know, there is a po poetic form of justice in this idea. Corporate America's Aaron Boys on Capitol Hill have been using this tax code for generations to create huge benefits for businesses. 
So why shouldn't we use the tax code now, at long last, to create a major benefit for low-wage workers? Okay, so in case you have not been taking notes, let's sum this up very simply. I am 100% in favor of repealing the filibuster, or at least weakening the bird rule, so the minimum wage can be increased as part of the stimulus package. But if the Senate is too tangled in its own rules to do this, then by all means, put a $15 minimum wage in the tax code and let the tax penalties and benefits roll out. Not only will low-wage workers get a raise, but we will have a great time watching corporate America squeal. Not a bad idea. All right, we have a great show for you today. It is Fem Friday. Esperanza Fonseca and Julia Rock are here. And then when we come back, we will be back with Cara Jabala Carolas, and she's going to discuss uh, the feminist economic recovery. She's the executive director of the Hawaii State Commission on the Status of Women. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Cara Jabola Carolis is the executive director of the Hawaii State Commission on the Status of Women. Uh, it is a feminist, it's an organization, uh, a statewide feminist government agency, excuse me, that works towards equality for women and girls in the state by acting as a catalyst for positive change through advocacy, education, collaboration, and program development. Thank you so much for joining, joining us, Cara. Aloha, good morning from Hawaii. Aloha, good morning. Mm -hmm. I like that. <laughs> so, um, I mean, there are, these agencies exist in sometimes cities and, and, and in some state governments, uh, but they're pretty rare and very rarely do they make major news, but you've been making news in Hawaii um, for the work you're doing around the economic recovery. Can you first just describe like what the agency is, is set up to do? Yeah, good question. So. This agency is kind of a gift from the 1960s. It's really interesting some of the things that feminists institutionalize for us that are kind of lying in wait and really just depend on who organizes to use them. So we're the oldest, actually, the State Commission on the Status of Women in the U.S., although Hawaii is a colony of the U.S. and the Pacific. And we are statewide. And we also have corollaries in every county. So it's this nice like local to state level um, system. And I think a lot of people were surprised to, to have us put this out because it was so unlikely to come from the US because of the dominance of like neoliberal logics here and where the state of mainstream feminism is. So, so yeah, that's just a little bit about us. And we're directly involved in the ways that states, the state makes policies, um, its resources. We're basically like the main policy consultant for legislators in Hawaii and the resource center for women here. It, are, are most of your state lawmakers or, or say whoever, whichever lawmakers uh, exist in Hawaii, are they receptive to, to what you put out? I mean, one does not simply ask for <laughs> uh, <Really? laughs> you know, economy or colonial relations and class distinctions are removed, but um, there is more social visibility around women's oppression because of the COVID-19 pandemic, for sure. And so there has been um, a really interesting reception among legislators, especially at the local level, so at the county levels. Every single county but Honolulu, which is about to introduce legislation, has passed legislation committing to following our feminist economic recovery and how they um, structure their plans for the local government level. So that just or happened organically. Um, what is, can you explain what the feminist economic plan, recovery plan is? Uh, you know, how it was built, what was the process of, of putting this together? Well, the context is really important. You know, in Hawaii right now, we still have the highest unemployment rate in the United States. And at one point we were at 40% because we are, yeah, we, I mean, we're hyper reliant on patriarchal institutions and really just fragile extractive industries. So, I mean, literally war, tourism and luxury development, basically. And so those failed us. Um, well, war, maybe not, but tourism fell off a cliff. And because of the state managing this kind of sweet spot of capitalism, white supremacy, and patriarchy, 
where women are like maximally exploited in the workplace and the home, women are concentrated in these feminized industries, these low wage industries. Um, and so there was a very clear um, reaction to the impact on women in our community of activists and advocates. So um, right when the crisis hit um, about a year ago, we pulled together a team of women, like a motley crew. We had women from, you know, death, death liberation activists. We had um, Native Hawaiian um, public health experts. We had students, um, just this diverse group of women who wanted to make sure that the short-term plan represented a very specific type of feminism that was, you know, had a strong historical analysis and transnational analysis. Like I'm a Filipina immigrant, uh, immigrant family based um, activist, right? So I have that kind of global perspective. Um, and we all came together and wrote this plan in about a week's time um, because okay. we, know, we knew we had to keep up with the pace of the state and what was happening. So, um, so yeah, it, it happened really from, from our community and the trust that we built with working um, with activists here. And some of the elements of the plan are short-term and others are really a declaration of where we wanna go, so. Was, um, okay, so let's talk about some of the short-term aspects. What, yeah. What's, what, what, yeah, what was made up in the plan, short-term? Well, some of the features are, right, pushing back against the immediate knee jerk to rely on funding and programs and gutting um, social programs that women rely on to fund the recovery. Uh, you know, the plan is called Building Bridges, Not Walking on Backs, which is, of course, a shout out to Gloria Anzaldúa, um, because we didn't want this to be balanced on women um, with the budget crisis that we're facing. Another thing is, you know, there's this, bit, this bit push for green jobs as an alternative to tourism, but as it stands, 78% of renewable jobs are held by men. So it's, you know, you see the gender segregation. And so investing in that without counteracting that will leave women behind. So that was another focus. Also allocating 20% of the federal funding coming in, the massive amounts of money to Native Hawaiians to use as they see fit to recover, um, to honor the obligation that the state of Hawaii has to Native Hawaiians was one of the other short-term um, proposals. And then, you know, building up a social infrastructure for women from maternal and birthing systems to, uh, you know, universal free public childcare from zero to five, just things that are necessary for the scaffold of the economy. So there are a lot of different features, but um, yeah, they're all, they're all in, in motion, many of them. You know, I, I asked you about the receptivity um, of this plan by lawmakers, but you know, as you know, probably very well, when you go and you lobby a lawmaker, you know, they may like one part of the plan, but they may come up with some sort of either uh, excuse for not supporting another aspect of it or maybe an incremental response to it. Have you seen any sort of responses that, uh, you know, maybe they want to pick the plan apart and, and implement parts of it? Yeah, I mean, there are some urgent and glaring overt pieces of sexism that are playing out in during the crisis. Like we have uh, the permanent state telework policy for public workers prohibits you to care give while you're teleworking. Um, what? Uh, yeah, it's caused like massive confusion, crisis um, for public workers. What? They're, How is yeah. that legal? <laughs> so, so that's an example of something that right now we're in legislative session that's being taken up. Uh, so, so it's a, there, there's some really basic reforms that need to happen there um, that are before the legislature. Also like emergency um, and housing vouchers, like housing assistance during the, the crisis, a lot of landlords were rejecting them um, because in Hawaii, we don't have any statutes that prevent source of income discrimination. So, you know, you, you can just say no section eight 
don't even bother applying. I will not even consider Section 8 or any other government source of funding for rent. So that's another one. Um, there, there are, you know, a, a really visible sign of patriarchy is the violence that's emerged and heightened during COVID. So all of our anti-violence service providers are fighting for their budgets, fighting for technical reforms too um, during session. So there's a lot going on from the plan. There's not one like omnibus package, but there are a lot of, like I said, pieces of it in motion right now. So what, what are some of the long-term goals that came out of the plan? Well, I mean, one thing that is a long-term goal, but that also has a vehicle right now in our session is addressing the dominance of um, sexism and patriarchal ideology across government. So we introduced a, a bill that is moving that would require anti-sexism and implicit bias training um, a program in government. And I don't think that anything like that exists in the US right now, but it's something that we wanted to do to address like the culture, the colonial mindset that shapes policymaking because every year, right, we go up against basically like the climate change deniers of women's oppression. They don't believe there's a gender wage gap. They don't believe women, you know, need greater access to abortion. They blame women for, prostitution, you know, just down the line. And so if we don't actually attack the ideology, then we will continue to, you know, run into roadblocks just in terms of the culture. So that's one aspect of long-term change. So because you're from Hawaii um, and any opportunity, you know, that there is for someone to talk about uh, colonial mindset, I, I want to welcome because, you know, it's especially if people aren't conscious of it. Um, I mean, could you just could I know it's a big subject, but could you elaborate a little bit on on when you mentioned colonial mind, mindset on the island in particular, um, as opposed to like other places around around the world? Uh, what does that mean? Yeah, um, I mean, in terms of gender, uh, you know, the it's it's different in Hawaii because Hawaii was colonized very recently. And so there is this sense and awareness that the current economy is a construct that happened through a, a colonial process and a historical process. And, you know, the mentality that, um, you know, around acceptance of hierarchies that were put in place artificially is really what I mean by that colonial mindset. And um, for us, it's really about um, looking to history, organizing with women um, who are leading the anti-colonial movement here to make sure that we are carrying that burden um, in government. So I don't know if that answered your question, but- well, I mean, So you're saying like they set up, uh, okay, so when, when did Hawaii become, uh, are you saying it became a colony when it became a state or when it was first occupied by you know, Westerners? Well, I, I don't know if I should or can answer that question, but the overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom was in 1893. And it's tied closely with the histories of the Philippines, Guahan, Puerto Rico. Um, and so we've had a parallel struggle with those island nations. Um, and so, you know, there is a, and at that time, it was a woman in, in leadership, hmm. which played a, a big role, right? Like overthrowing a white supremacist coup, overthrowing a powerful woman of color, a native woman. Um, and that is um, something that is in the collective memory and guides the movement here. So um, it is something that we centered in our plan is returning to that mutual mutuality of relationship and stewardship of land and connection to, um, to people in terms of the, the um, you know, approach to governance. And that was, that was really important for the plan. And, and, and after the overthrow um, of the kingdom and, and obviously once Hawaii became a state, can you talk about like, what were the interests on the island? Like what, um, what were the goals of, of the conquering of uh, the island? I mean, what, 
in Puerto Rico, there were geopolitical reasons, same thing with the Philippines. And, um, but, you know, can you explain a little bit more about Hawaii's intentions? I mean, there? on the surface, it was always pitched as altruistic and purely just, you know, geopolitical in terms of like a coaling station to stop over to help with the war in the Philippines. But ultimately it's economic, right? So the ability to seize land and to commodify land and to set up these plantation economies. I mean, it was literally some of the same white men who obstructed land distribution in Hawaii and in the Philippines and went over to the Philippines and bought up plantations, well, haciendas and turned them into to plantations, um, you know, literally the same men. And so it was primarily economic. And oppressing people at the same time. Um, okay, so I mean, this your plan is 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 amazing. Do you feel that there uh, the attention is people are giving this plan the attention nationally and and being inspired to do so in other states or other parts of the world even? Yeah, I mean, you know, we put it out and then we just like put our heads back down and kept working. And then, you know, there was no like calm strategy. There was no comms director or anything like that. And just, we were overwhelmed by the amount of people contacting us. So people in um, Northern Ireland, Ireland, people in Indonesia, various UN agencies, um, Canada, it, it's just been a year of basically solidarity and building allyships across the world. In the United States, I think North Carolina has issued their own plan. Um, I think Massachusetts, um, but I don't know if it, I don't think it was explicitly feminist. Again, there are different constraints and different like politics, right, from, from different commissions. But I, um, I think several states in India, Canada for sure has put out one. Um, and I think the momentum is go keeping up because people keep contacting us, um, even last week. Yeah. Are you seeing... Uh are you seeing like the, the effects on the ground? Like are the numbers shifting a bit or has legislation been passed and or in the process? Like wh where's the state of the actual change? Yeah, so our legislative, it's hard to say at the state level because our legislative session got disrupted by COVID and it's a part-time legislature. So we had to wait almost a full year to start this process and we're in the middle of it right now. So a lot of things that other states got to address, we have had to wait. But like I said, um, the, at the county level, the counties just wanted to, to roll with it. And so um, that's, that's been something that has been really encouraging. And I think there's also a greater sense of connection in those rural areas and wanting to make sure that women are not left behind in the recovery. So we are looking forward to Honolulu, which is the, the largest county, uh, introducing their legislation soon as well. I'm super excited about this. Uh I love that, that, that you guys got straight to work and you're inspiring others to do so. And hopefully um, those who are watching can, can share the plan, can share the work you've been doing uh, and maybe inspire your own communities to do the same thing. Cara Jabella Corollas, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, we will be right back after this break with our panel, a quick little uh, public service announcement right back after the break. So, Sunset Lake CBD. Uh, you may have heard me talk about them before. I am totally hooked. Uh, Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer-owned uh, company that ships craft CBD products directly from their farm in Vermont to your door. Uh, they have something special for everyone. They offer tinctures, gummies, which I love and I ate all of them, uh, solves, and coffee, CBD coffee, which is designed to help with stress, aches, and pain while keeping you awake. That's, uh, I think that's a big, I think Dorsey has talked about how he's enjoyed the coffee. Uh, they're originally a dairy farm from the Ben and Jerry's, the Ben and Jerry's farm, and they decided to diversify and grow premium hemp. Uh, customers support sustainable agriculture there that enhances rural economies and creates meaningful employment in their community in Vermont. The minimum wage is, oh, $15 an hour. Hmm. Seems like it works for small companies. Employees own and manage the company and they support independent media like our show, The Nomi Key Show, The David Pakman Show, and of course, the majority 
report those people over there. I don't know if you know them, uh, but I want I want to talk about my experience with them because I uh, got this box of of chocolate fudge. Dorsey, did you try the fudge yet? I have tried the fudge. It's delicious. Uh, we actually had some. Well, we were supposed to have some last night, but uh, we wanted to eat a little bit too early. I thought, and it was probably just going to maybe knock me out personally if I, I had it too early. So I, I went for the gummies right before bed instead, but awesome chocolates tonight since it's the weekend. Uh, they say to wait 30 minutes for it to take effect. So I have a feeling I won't fall asleep on the show. I'm just gonna take a little bite. I can always take a nap after the show. I love fudge. There's a rule you're not supposed to eat on camera, but I don't care. <laughs> it's like one of those, um, oh my God, that's so delicious. Um, seriously. Now I'm now I'm chewing. This is why you don't eat on camera. But Doris, if you want to talk about the coffee while I'm eating, <laughs> sorry. yeah, sorry, my my mic is cutting in and out. But uh, yeah, I when we got the coffee, I wasn't sure about it just because uh, my partner is a bit of a coffee snob. Um, but we ended up running out of our regular coffee, so we're like, let's just try it, and it turned out to be delicious. My partner was. Uh, pretty happy with it and I can't wait to get some more. We've been sticking to the tincture and the gummies and we've got a whole order coming in. I sent some out to my parents too, some of the fudge and the gummies. So I'm waiting for them to report back, but they've tried a bunch of CBD before and it never really seems to work for them. And I'm, I'm, Totally, I'm into the, to, to the Sunset Lake CBD. So I told them to try it out and sent them a couple packages and we'll see what they have awesome. to say. I have to say, I mean, I know this is an ad, but I'm telling you the honest truth. I've never had CBD work for me. And the gummies, like I had the deepest sleep afterwards. And I have, I've said this on here before, I have a lot of sleeping issues. I have a monitor for my sleep and for my walking. I wake up every morning. I look at how much I've slept. I go to bed. I drink like weird tea concoctions with like valerian. But when I had the gummies, best sleep. Not only was it, it wasn't in my head. I went back to my tracker and I looked at my sleep and I had no disruptions throughout the night. No, like whatever experience I have, which wakes me up all the time. Um, deepest sleep I've had in years. So go check it out. Uh, go to sunset, sunsetlakecbd.com and use the promo code NOMI for 20% off your entire order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com, promo code NOMI. For 20, 20, 20% off of your entire order. I just ordered some for my aunt too. So we're hooked. <laughs> All right, guys, we'll be right back after the break with our fantastic Fem Friday panel. Welcome back to Fem Friday. Nomi Show. Thanks to everybody in the chats right now. Make sure to smash that like button if you aren't already a subscriber. This is the moment. I have like a pledge that once we hit 75K, I'm going to play some games on Twitch. Once we hit 100K, I'm going to play some more games on Twitch. So if you want to see me play some games on Twitch, that's how you're going to do it. Trust me, it'll be fun. I'm extremely competitive. And like the problem with it is that once I start playing, I probably won't stop playing. I get, I get in the zone. Like anything that I, 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 I get into, I'm like all in. That's my, if I'm into a genre of uh, the next 10 books I read are that type of book. I become a mini expert on, you know, horses or no, that's never happened to me. <laughs> or uh, I don't know. Uh, what did I go through? Oh, I went through a phase where I was reading about Istanbul like last year. I read like one book and then I read another book and then I read a counter book. And it was just this whole thing about Istanbul because I went there. So um, that'll be me with playing games on Twitch, something I know nothing about other than Frogger. All right, guys, uh, if you are not already, make sure to join us on patreon.com. We got little perks. If you join different levels, you can get a mug. Uh, We have stickers. I I now have them out. I never have them out. And we have this bag that I go do my grocery shopping in. Um, One time somebody stopped me at a coffee shop. It was kind of cool. And they're like, I love that show. And I was like, Hi, it's me. So clearly I wear makeup on TV and I don't wear it off TV. Um, anywho, please check us out at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. You can also sign up to join our book club. Uh, we have an amazing book club underway. I believe we're about to go to our second book. I have to check the schedule, but we're doing our interview for the second book um, this week. Uh, that's the February book club. You can join for one book a month, two books a month, or four books a month, which is really a lot of work, (laughs) but it's so much fun. And if you believe in challenging yourself like I am right now, uh, you will be reading every moment you can instead of watching Netflix and missing all of the hot shows. 
that's just my prediction. But you can join at patreon.com slash the Nomi Show. That's our book club. All right. We have an amazing Femme Friday panel today. Uh, of course, back one of our regulars, Esperanza Fonseca. She is an, a member of a firm. She's a labor and policy organizer. And Julia Rock joins us today from the Daily Poster, which is uh, she's a reporter for the Daily Poster. It's a grassroots funded investigative journalism project that covers politics, business and corporate power founded by our dear friend, David Sirota. Thanks for joining us, ladies. Thanks so much for having me. I'm loving this background, Esperanza. Very cool, the Affirm background. Thank you. I wanted to uh, wrap my organization today and our beautiful colors. <laughs> it's beautiful, it matches, it matches me. Um, <laughs> All right, so we have a lot of news going on right now, but I, I, I wanted to lead with a story that we, we touched on actually with our first interview uh, guest. It is a story that was published this year. It's not new, but I just think it bears repeating. And it, it, is, it was published, the story was in the New York Times, but the report uh, came out in May about how homeschooling and, and domestic work is not being shocker um, apportioned equally. And not only is it not being apportioned equally between genders, but <laughs> the, and, and obviously this is an imperfect poll, um, half of men say that they are doing most of the homeschooling and domestic work. And 3% of men agree, or women agree with this number. Are we shocked? Are we? <laughs> like in any way that there are different interpretations of who's doing the work at home. But for real, this is having um, the economic consequences have been severe and that women are on the front lines right now of, of many industries. And then they're doing so much more work at home. Um, so, you know, we're now at the point where we're about to hear uh, hit year two of the pandemic, uh, moving into year two of the pandemic, and we actually do have numbers. Julia, I mean, you cover politics. The first question I have is why, why isn't this being screamed from the mountaintops by our progressive lawmakers? Why aren't they talking about the gendered aspect of this because it is so significant? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the best answer to that question is that most of the lawmakers who might be screaming it aren't kind of willing to make the public investments in the types of things that are needed to make this distribution of labor more equal. So investments in universal childcare and public schools um, would, would kind of be the most obvious solution to this problem. And, you know, lawmakers aren't willing to take these issues that they see as really in the home into the public sphere. Esperanza, I mean, you, as a labor organizer, do you, have you found that uh, unions are, highlighting the gender dynamics? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that has been a historical failure of uh, the labor movement. I mean, of course, there has been times where the labor movement has, you know, addressed male chauvinism or addressed uh, women's, uh, you know, uh, reproductive work and like feminized labor. But uh, the reality is, is that by and large, the labor movement has not. And that's not to say it cannot, but it's to say that uh, we need to step up and specifically men need to step up uh, and really start centering an analysis of women's work uh, in their analysis of labor more generally. And then I also think it's, it's incredibly important for us to think beyond solutions that center on changing dynamics in the individual home and begin to thinking of ways that we can collectify, uh, collectivize these things, such as childcare, et cetera. Um, it's interesting because it, our previous guest was talking about the work in Hawaii and how the collective, the, the, the culture of collectivism, right? Just communal uh, aspect of, of dealing with, with families and, and, and work were removed when the kingdom was overthrown and then it became this, this colonized uh, island. So I want to move to, um, related to this, obviously related to this, Representative Katie Porter uh, has been talking about the single parent penalty, which is a hashtag, and saying it's a racial and gender issue, given that four, uh, four out of five single parents are women and two out of three are black. So can we roll that clip real quick? 
And you're absolutely right that the single parent penalty has its legacies in structural racism, in attitudes about what a family should look like that were often um, designed to punish um, black people, certain kinds of lower income people, um, people who weren't married or couldn't get married or, or marriage didn't work out. Um, and so it's really, really important that we understand this isn't an accident. This wasn't a typo in the bill. Um, this is something that just grew out of our country's history in terms of how we think about what is a family and what kinds of families do we help? What yes. kinds of families do we reward? So this is a for me yes. very much a justice, racial justice, gender justice issue. Yeah, and I was actually being uh, generous because I said that it was people's blind spots, but it's actually their biases, you know? So that's, that's the truth of the matter. And you're absolutely... So, I mean, this is profound that they're having this conversation, uh, Representative Porter and, and Representative Presley, about the racial and gender dynamics. But, I mean, the reality is, is that we're living with a Congress right now that, as, as you were saying, Julie, like... The, there's no pathway to this at all. And there's no public campaign around these issues. I mean, I'm still, every day, I, I, I'm shocked by how removed the effects of this economy, that, like who it's affecting is from the conversation, the national conversation about the $15 minimum wage or healthcare or $2,000 checks. Like, who's it gonna help? Julia, yeah, <laughs> you're not in your head. I mean, yeah, I, th I think it's especially interesting that you bring up the $15 minimum wage because the, you know, Democratic playbook for the last two months has been finding all of these reasons not to do things that would help people. And the parliamentarians ruling yesterday that the $15 minimum wage couldn't be included in the budget bill is something that Kamala Harris, who has been a huge advocate of a $15 minimum wage, has the power to do something about and is choosing not to. And yeah, so I think you're exactly right that part of it is really this disconnect between what people are experiencing and part of it is finding constant excuses not to wield power to help people. Esperanza, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, just going off of uh, this conversation, I mean, how many times are we going to listen to people who tell us to mobilize to vote for Democrats, and then they get in office and they turn around and they bomb Syria, they roll back on all their promises, over 26,000 people have been deported, um, regardless of what you think about the court ruling, the original executive order had four uh, big, uh, you know, loopholes to continue deporting right. people. Uh, there's no $15 minimum wage. I mean, the stimulus check was uh, severely cut from what Biden and Warnock and all these people promised. So I mean, at what point are we going to say this electoral strategy of electing Democrats who are not here for us. They are here for big capital. It's not working. We need to divest from a corporate party and we need to form our own party of workers based on solid and sound principles. I mean, the path to, uh, this is a, it's a much bigger question I think that we could have a conversation about for hours. Um, but I mean, the reality is, is like the Democratic Party is, is has, I speak from experience, um, they have used procedural rules that they have set up just as the Senate has uh, to protect and to enlist these corporate actors, these lobbyists, these war, uh, the, some of them are weapons manufacturer lobbyists who literally will, will, will have taken over the party, weren't elected, um, and to supersede, you know, the vote and the will of actual Democrats and and whether it's primaries or DNC members or fiscal control boards, uh, who none of them are elected and they all have some sort of direct corporate influence. But by procedural, um, you know, loopholes, they're able to to just squash any sort of democracy. So, yeah, something has to happen. I, I Bigger conversation. Go ahead, Esperanza. I know you want to say something. Yeah, just real quick. I want to say, I think that's why those of us who call ourselves socialists, we recognize that it's not simply about having good policy, but something fundamentally needs to change about the structure of our democracy. Because right now you win a reform, it can be rolled back immediately. Yep. Uh, most rulemaking in, uh, you know, 
in our country happens by unelected people, administrative right. rulemaking. Most rulemaking is not legislative, whether it's on the state level or the federal right. level. So at what point are we going to say we're fed up with this sort of reformism that is not working and we need a complete uh, restructuring of our democracy because the democracy is not serving us, it's serving uh, the owners of big capital. Julia, do you see that there's um, any sort of efforts to combat these like uh, procedural uh, holdups? I know Pramila Jayapal has been a big advocate for parliamentary reform, but but is there any other sort of like pushback? I mean, I think I think the comparison that's kind of continuously been made is you know how progressives are responding right now and and fighting over the stimulus compared to where they were in 2009. And I think the fact even that so many people have recognized and are saying, you know, vice presidents before have ignored the parliamentarian, um, that Bernie Sanders is in charge of the budget committee and is already kind of using that position to really try to wield power for better things. I think things definitely do look different and better, but, you know, is it enough to be pushing back, back on Kamala Harris not using her power, I don't know. Like, it's definitely progress that there's much more outside organizing and resistance, but it kind of remains to be seen how far that's going to go, I think. And it's it's clearly not happening fast enough. I mean, we're spi- our economy's spiraling right now, and it's like we're still debating over scraps, $15. I mean, are you, are you laughing, kidding me? Right. <laughs> You know, Namiki, that's why um, I think that like we act like if we elect these super progressive leaders, even like, you know, Bernie, that mm-hmm. uh, we're going to be building something. But I mean, look at how Paul Engler uh, urged Bernie to take the the mass infrastructure that he created and turn it from an electoral uh, infrastructure to something that could be organized and mobilized long term. And what did he do? He, he collapsed it. I mean, sure, mm-hmm. he used his texting list to like raise money for certain organizations. But I mean, at what point are we going to realize that these people are not just going to give us concessions because we ask for them or because they have the same skin color, gender identity, uh, or background as us. I mean, we are going to need to take power ourselves and power only comes when we are consciously and collectively organized as a class. Julia, do you have thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the point you're raising, you know, especially, a moment ago, given that we were talking about kind of a third party or an alternative to the Democratic Party is really important in terms of how much energy is even worth putting into electoral organizing. And, you know, I obviously cover mostly electoral and legislative politics. So I put a lot of energy into thinking about that. Um, but I think there there's a very good case to be made that, you know, right now building the labor movement is a, is a much more kind of valuable use of time than electing anybody. Yeah. I mean, and, and reforming the reforming or, or taking over the labor movement because it's, it has just as many procedural issues. Um, I want to shift just a little bit because uh, Julie, you've done this great story on Amazon, something that we've been covering regularly on the show. Uh, Amazon, of course, is trying to union bust in Bessemer, Alabama uh, at their warehouse there where they're, they're undergoing a uh, a vote. Um, why don't we play that clip real quick? And then I'd love to get your response, Julia, just about how, from both of you, but um, given it's your story. We at the Birmingham team have a great leadership. We really don't need anyone coming in and telling us what they want to give us, because basically we have everything we need here. Always want it to work for Amazon. This is the only place I've seen that have benefits from day one. There's no waiting period. You got chances to advance. Vote no for the union. I will vote no. It's not needed. Vote no, we can do it without the dues. (laughs) To be a union rep in Los Angeles at International Airport, and they don't do nothing but take your money. They just (laughs) take your money, and they don't do anything for you. I would keep what Amazon got. I love it. Yeah, I want to make my career here. I don't need the union. I'm going to vote no. I think the union coming in here would be devastating. We're all one. Let's get it done. (laughs) Okay, so Julia, where did these ads appear? How did you learn about those? 
Okay, I want to clarify. I did not report a story on these ads. Oh, I apologize. I'm so sorry. No. I was. I had your story up. Oh, I apologize. Okay. Um, we've been covering. I apologize. That's, that's somehow that came out. I think through a tweet that I had. Um, but you, you're you're following what's happening in, in yeah. with the Amazon right now. So. Okay, so these 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 propaganda campaigns. Obviously, Amazon has been uh, consistently and regularly like trying to pressure and intimidate workers through multiple different tactics. Even like changing, uh, somehow going to the government to like extend the red lights on cameras. It's insane, absolutely insane. Um, is this does this seem to be working? Are people like? Is there any sense that these ads are people are taking it seriously? I mean, that that seems kind of, you know, impossible to say until we know the results of the union election, but it it does, even just kind of the scope of the union busting efforts have shown kind of just how powerful Amazon is in the traffic, traffic light example is a great example of Amazon basically bending local governments to their will to, you know, run these warehouses where workers are exploited in all sorts of ways. Um, I, I think, you know, the other point to make here is kind of what we were talking about before, but it would be really powerful if, if more elected officials were saying something about the union election, specifically Joe Biden. And he said he would be the union president and it would be really powerful if he stepped in, um, and, and God forbid went to Alabama, um, but hasn't like whether union busting tactics like this are effective. I, am not the right person to answer that question in the, in the case of the Amazon union, but it's it's they're they're definitely making their best effort and they definitely could be successful. Esperanza, I mean you've you've done organizing. Have you ever dealt with any sort of busting? Oh yeah. I mean I've dealt with some vicious union busting attacks. I mean, and and the only thing that can get past that are strong and deep and militant organizing with a conscious cadre of workers. I mean, you you know, we're gonna face a lot of hurdles, a lot of obstacles. I mean, the opposition is going to fight us to to the death, to the end, right? And so we have to be as strongly and militantly organized as possible so that we can withstand these blows um, because they are blows and they are setbacks. And if we're not organized, we're not going to be able to go through it. But I think that on the bigger picture, we have to not simply look at this economically, but also politically. I mean, this points out one of the fundamental contradictions of a liberal capitalist democracy. I mean, how can we say that we have the freedom of association when you have union busting firms, which are legal and can run around and their their job is to use their the wealth and power of the capitalist class to shut down and deny workers the right of freedom of association. There is no right of free association when you have uh, union busting firms running around uh, interfering with what you're doing, right? And I think Lenin said it uh, in State and Revolution, which is that freedom in capitalist society is the same as it has always been, uh, freedom for the slave owner, like it was in, mm. you know, in Greek society. And right. ultimately, we're going to have to resolve the fundamental political contradiction of our democracy. Uh, and these firms are making millions and millions of dollars. It is jarring. I, I, do you guys have any sense of like how they form, where? Um, I've read some reports about them, them, them doing some overseas work, but do you have a sense of like how, how they come about? Nothing, no. Okay. I just figured I'd throw it out there because you're both. I, you know, <laughs> there like are, there are some uh, union busters, like for example, one man wrote a diary about how he was a union buster. Um, I forgot the name of the book, but you can search it and find it. Um, some people are recruited to the other side. I know Lyft attempted to recruit me to do policy for them in California. And I was like, I would God. rather starve than work for the enemy. Um, but you know, also like these, these people are expert in communication, in psychological manipulation. I mean, they in opposition research like they recruit from experts in their field who can run disinformation campaigns and know how to commit mass manipulation 
Oh my God. That's horrifying. Um, yeah, we've, I've, I've read about some counterinsurgency, like people who worked in counterinsurgency programs going to the States, um, to work on union busting. Um, Julia, just, I mean, I know we only have a few minutes left and I want to cover a couple more stories, but you, uh, have covered, uh, what's going on with McDonald's right now and <laughs> the paid sick leave McDonald's, Walmart, uh, the paid, paid sick leave initiatives and how the they're asking, as, as you just posted, regulators to help quash them. Um, can you talk a little bit about the what you discovered? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there was this moment kind of in March that we all remember where it seemed like there were so many possibilities to kind of change policies for the better that people you know, we're realizing the vulnerabilities of our society due to the pandemic. And one thing that happened in that moment um, was that a number of large corporations who have frontline workers who work for them enacted some temporary paid sick leave policies. Um, most of them were pretty restrictive, like only if you tested positive for COVID, could you have a certain amount of time off, et cetera. But they did enact these policies. And so investors came together um, from kind of a shareholder advocacy organization in December to file shareholder resolutions at some of these big companies, like you said, McDonald's, Walmart, CVS, Dollar General, some others, um, to ask not even that these companies extend their paid sick leave policies permanently, but that they just conduct a feasibility study of what it would mean to extend paid sick leave policy um, permanently. And it was interesting speaking with the investors who kind of had some contact with the companies before they filed these resolutions and thought, you know, oh, maybe they would be open to it. Um, obviously, if COVID decimates your workplace, it's bad for you as a business manager. And what these companies did is they went right to the SEC um, and asked the SEC to back them in striking out the resolutions from the annual meetings this year so that shareholders don't even have a chance to vote on them. And already the SEC has taken the side of four of the seven companies where resolutions were filed. And the argument that the SEC makes is that this is not a significant policy issue. So for investors to kind of have a say in the inner workings of a company, there's this precedent that the issue has to be a significant policy issue. And you would think during a pandemic, when at least half a million people have died, many of them essential workers, paid sick leave would be a significant social policy issue. And yet the SEC has said no. This is amazing because this is like part of a trend where um, you know investors were uh, going back to Amazon, same thing. Uh, global investors, including here, were pushing back saying, "Cut the union busting." So, I, I, if it's not about the shareholders, then who is it about? Like, wh why are these companies making this decision? Go ahead, Esperanza. I'm I'm just baffled okay. by this. So, um, you know, everyone should read Jane McAlevey. I have yes. my own critiques of her, but in the end of the day. Her. Her core thesis is correct. I mean, she proved it through empirical evidence. I mean, you're not going to win a campaign against a giant, powerful corporation unless you have a majority of the workforce organized, deeply organized with roots in the community and who are ready to take militant action together. I mean, the labor movement has largely shifted from deep organizing like that to corporate and comprehensive campaigns. Corporate campaigns rely, they don't see worker organizing as the center. They see it as one of like 12 different uh, pieces of strategy. And so they'll rely on, for example, getting investors to put pressure on the company, but it is a failed strategy. The only strategy that has been proven to work is when you build a majority in the store on the ground in store organizing. And we need to see a return to that. Otherwise, uh, investors can say all they want, but at the end of the day, I mean, the bottom line in capitalism is profit, not how nicely you're treating your workers. In fact, the worse you treat them, likely the more profit you can extract from them. Um, go check out her book, No Shortcuts. I believe that was the one. Uh, what you're referring to. She's been on the show about that. All right. I, I want to touch uh, before we go on Syria. Uh, we only have a couple of minutes. We're, we're learning more about the details of what happened, hopefully a little bit more. Um, we just published the, the press conference at the top uh, when we were going into the show that, that um, uh, the Biden administration's press conference on uh, the attacks in Syria. And of course, um, Jamal Khashoggi, uh, the, the choice to not prosecute or 
We'll talk about it tomorrow. But uh, let's talk about Syria real quick, because, uh, of course, we all know at this point that the Biden administration has acted swiftly uh, based on their reasoning to strike in Syria. Uh, there's outrage everywhere right now, understandably. Uh, the 36th day of his presidency, this is the Gravel Institute saying, they bombed uh, Syria, gave up on the minimum $15 minimum wage and didn't send out survival checks. So instead of getting into the nitty gritty about like what happened in Syria, we will touch on it tomorrow extensively. I want to touch on it from that point because we are in the 36th day of the presidency and it seems as if we're just back in the Obama administration, but we have to recover from Trump's end of pandemic and and so much. So, Julia, I mean, is there any indication right now that the Biden administration is planning to do anything that they campaigned on, frankly? like, Yeah, I mean, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. I think it will be hard to answer that until we kind of see what happens with, you know, the relief package that will hopefully pass at some time in March. But, you know, obviously he has so much power that he could use uh, through executive orders. I think you make the you know good point that what the Syria bombings show is that he could do anything he wanted to. And it's kind of about what he chooses to do. Um, so is he going to be the biggest champion of the things he promised on the campaign trail? It doesn't really seem like that. But I, I don't think that necessarily means that there's kind of no hope for anything good to happen because I think, you know, outside pressure can work. I mean, it was so frustrating yesterday. We we covered the um, deportation centers um, extensively and, you know, showing the clips of Kamala Harris just a couple of months ago, calling it inhumane, a humanitarian uh, crisis. And then the administration, you, uh, Esperanza, I mean, like, there's so much outside pressure. There was so much outside pressure from liberals that supported Joe Biden and progressives, of course, um, and people who've been on the ground doing this work for decades. And it didn't work in the Trump administration. And I think my concern here now is the lesson that the Biden administration may have taken from the Trump administration is that they don't have to respond to the movement. Yeah. I mean, look, this is the ugly truth of U.S. imperialism. I mean, liberals can be outraged all they want. They can threaten about voting this person or that person out of office. That doesn't matter. Like, you need a diversity of tactics. You need a united front. And importantly, which is missing from the U.S. left, which tends to fall deeply into American chauvinism, is that you need an international front every single issue that we are experiencing is connected to the looting and the exploitation, the super exploitation of the third world, of nationally oppressed people. Our struggle is their struggle. And until we realize that and explain that in every issue we talk about, this is going to keep happening. I mean, it's not, dis it's, it's not a, a coincidence that we are not getting any assistance during a time where more people have died than 9-11. And at the same time, the US empire continues on its path of warmongering. And yet we're supposed to be grateful for a few organizers in Georgia for putting this man in. I mean, come on, we need, we need better. And we need to face the fact that this is the ugly face of imperialism. And until we unite and fight it in an organized, a conscious and a militant way, this is gonna keep happening. And we're simply passing our problems off to the next generation but it's, it's the point of no return at this point i mean that's i think what the when we're every time we have this every single time that we have a conversation about foreign policy there's this there's this existential like fear of you know how climate change isn't being dealt with how we continue to invade countries that have or keep boots on the ground in countries um that have some sort of financial ties or interests that we have financial interests or oil in um and yet like $2,000 checks. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm baffled at this point. It's like a collection of issues that just like was thrown on our laps today and what to prioritize, how to feel, what to, how to organize with so much, uh, I think is, is, it's very hard for people right now to kind of, um, have a sense. So anyways, I appreciate you too. Esperanza Fonseca, Julia Rock. Thanks for joining us today for Femme Friday. Always a pleasure. Hopefully a uh, less packed news day next week and we can like delve deeper into some of these issues, but there was a lot. <laughs> Thank you, Nomiki. Thank Thanks you so much. Take care guys.
All right, let's do some shout outs. Conan Yagami, uh, sending some love. Thank you, Conan and Prairie Fire Kowalski from Nebraska. Just paid for my kombucha. I've already had too much coffee today. Kyler Asato, uh, ooh, on the topic of feminism and no elected structure, how about talking to secure, talking secure families initiative for military families? It's a great topic. Let's add that to the list for next Friday. Good, thank you. Uh, shout out to everybody on Twitch and on YouTube. In that chat, thank you all for joining today for our fabulous Fem Friday and to Midi Doctors for working those algorithms and our YouTube moderators, Bob C, Choken, The Orb, and Chuck Diesel. And over at Twitch, Dorian Sapiens, A Difficult Truth, Nightbot, Our Means, and Nug Wrangler. There are so many, I love it. Thank you all for, for joining. And if you haven't already, Send us your, your addresses so we can mail you some stuff at thenomikishow at gmail.com. If you want it. I mean, we got it. Might as well mail it to you. We're doing all this amazing work for the show. We just are super, super grateful. So send us your, your addresses and we will do so. All right, everybody. Have a wonderful weekend. Stay in solidarity. We will see you on Tuesday of next week. 